Our book this week contains themes of murder, slight animal cruelty, and violence. If that isn't your cup of tea, that's fine, and we'll see you next week. Uh, welcome to Spilling Tea, the podcast where two friends sip tea and spill literature's dark histories. I'm Jane. And I'm Mackenzie. And we're tired. Let's just preface <laughs> that. This was our first full week of classes. Um, and it's been a rough one. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're still, we're still doing this because this is our procrastination and we're selfish humans who just want to do what we want to do. So let's jump into it with, um... Oh, yeah, our book. So our book this week, <laughs> oh, goodness, our book this week is uh, The Lord of the Flies by William Golding, so another classic English literature. Um, when did you read this one in school? I probably, I'm not, I don't even, I'm not even sure, actually, now that I think about it. I don't know if I read it in middle school or if I read it in, like, early high school. I read it freshman year of high school. I probably read it, like, 10th grade or something Mm -hmm. like that, because my classes were a little more messed up. I did, like, we did biblical studies, Mm -hmm. and I know, biblical studies, biblical studies and world lit freshman year, then we moved to English and romantic literature, and then I was in AP classes, so it was just more English and romantic literature, because that's what APs are, basically. Um, So, yeah, we both read this a while ago, Mm -hmm. but... I skimmed it. I skimmed it. Yeah. So, are we ready for our tea pairing we that we're pairing with this ready. really dark novel? Yeah, so our tea pairing, it, I wouldn't call it a stretch, but it definitely fits this novel Ooh. in a different way. Like, it's not a view that I think a lot of people would take when, if pairing a tea for this. So the tea Ooh, I have... What does that mean? You'll find out. <laughs> oh my goodness. The tea I have is a Tivana white tea. And it is youth berry. Youth. Uh, oh, yeah. And it is a citrus white tea blend with bright pops of tropical flavor, featuring mango, orange, hibiscus, and rose petals. Okay. So I chose this tea. So obviously the youth berry, because it centers around adolescence, this whole novel does. Yeah. You know, their age is, what, 6 through 12? I They're think very that was, like, 13, maybe 13, 12. maybe the top is 12 or 13. Yeah. So not very young. Um... It's kind of, you know, it's got that, like, tropical, because if you just look at Lord of the Flies, you're like, oh, it's they're on an island. And mm-hmm. although one thing we discussed with talking about this was they don't ever really specify where the island is. Yeah. But they do specify there's wild pigs, and they talk about foraging for fruit, and we can assume that it's probably not, you know, some barren, like, northern island. Like, it's definitely a more moderate to tropical climate. Yeah, I will go briefly into why mm-hmm. they end up on this island on this necessarily island. necessarily yeah. but like well I yeah. actually have one more connection oh that one I more really connection like, that's my weird because all those are pretty basic right yeah that's, youthful so tropical fruit pigs flavoring. are a really important part of this book there's that oh, whole they're obsessed ha- with hunting pigs right yeah, yeah and pigs really like to eat fruit including oranges and mangoes of which there are hints of in this tea <laughs> According to peace, oh according to Pig's Peace Sanctuary, Hello. fruits are an especially delicious treat for pigs, but one that should only be given occasionally. 
How did you find this connection? I was Googling what fruits do pigs eat. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about how the pigs, because in the book they never specify what kind of fruit they're eating. I, you know, they were just like, they pick fruit. And I was like, wouldn't it be lovely if they told me what kind of fruit? But William Golding does not tell me that. Well, yeah, because that's not central to well, the book. Well, pigs are central to the book. Okay. So I was trying to connect it with the pigs. Okay, that's not as much of a stretch. Yeah. I almost think the Medea stretch was worse. Yeah. This one's, it's a stretch. It's not a stretch. It's just a really different way of approaching it, I think. Yeah, so I'm not mad at it. Are we ready to sample our tea with our, our tea pouring? Yes. Ah, oh, beautiful. It's so clear. Well, it's, it's not clear. It's, it's not just clear. like a very peachy color. Mm-hmm. I really like it. Uh, it's nice. It's been cold to... Oop, accidentally touched the mic. It's been um, <laughs> cold lately. I'll give you a little bit more. A little bit more careful because I am a messy soul. Oh, right. no, that's perfect. There we go. Um, it's been starting to drop off here. It was like 100 degrees last week, and now we're down like to like... 50. <laughs> yeah, 50s. Like, we're closing the windows at night because our poor cacti are dying. And So what do we think of this tea? Right off the bat, it smells like spearmint to me almost. Like, hmm. I, don't, I don't know, but you know how like mint leaves smell almost? I don't think it's the tea. I think I just put on mint chapstick. I'm not even joking because this tea has no mint in it at all. Well, no, it's just got a very herby scent. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I'm, it's not mint. Maybe it's like parsley <laughs> that I'm thinking of or oregano or something like that. I like it. It's I mean, another sweeter one. It is sweeter. I wouldn't sweeter. put sugar in this, I don't think. No, 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 no. This would be really good iced, I think. Mm. We're drinking it hot and it's not bad it's just kind of like it tastes like it would be an iced tea like it's very fruity it's very like refreshing almost i'm ha- okay hold on hold on can you read the ingredients again because there is like yeah. an herb in here i swear there's, to God, there's an um herb. so it's white tea mango orange hibiscus and rose petals maybe i'm just tasting rose that could be it it also in the ingredients does have apples and candied pineapple hmm it must be the rose then because mm-hmm. maybe i'm just like so used to accidentally eating little bits of, like, my lotion um, from, like, either getting on my hands and then, like, me biting my nails or something and getting, like, the lotion from underneath my it nails. it tastes like roses. It tastes like roses. But maybe that's what I'm, maybe that's what I was smelling, but I'm just very sensitive to rose smell. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I'm a weird soul. So, so now that we've got tea, do we want to move on to our yes, plot summary? Yes, give us the plot summary, please. All right. So, Lord of the Flies sort of begins in the middle of a war, obviously, mm-hmm. and a plane evacuating a group of schoolboys from Britain is shot down over a deserted, this does say tropical island. Alright. So we don't quite know where it is, but we definitely know it's tropical. it's tropical. And two of the boys, Ralph and Piggy, discover a conch shell on the beach, and Piggy realizes it could be used as a horn to summon the rest of the boys on the island. Oh, Piggy. Oh, Piggy. We'll talk about him more. We love we love Piggy. Actually, no. But anyways. <laughs> but once assembled, the boys set about electing a leader and devising a way to be rescued. And they choose Ralph as their leader. And Ralph appoints another boy, Jack, to be in charge of the boys who will hunt for food for the entire group. And Ralph and Jack kind of right off the bat didn't really get along because Jack kind of wanted to be the leader. And Ralph let him lead the hunting group as kind of to appease him. Mm-hmm. And we'll see how that works out. Oh, yeah. So, Ralph, Jack, and another boy, Simon, set off on an expedition to explore the island. When they return, Ralph declares that they must light a signal fire to attract the attention of passing ships. 
The boys succeed in igniting some dead wood and focusing sunlight through the lens of Piggy's eyeglasses. Wow. However, they pay more attention to playing than to monitoring the fire, and the flames quickly engulf the forest. Fantastic. We love a good forest fire started by children. Doing good so far. <laughs> a la- a- a large, a large, a large swath. Swath. Wow. I'm gonna start that whole sentence over. Yeah, again. let's do it again. A large swath of dead wood burns out of control, Fun. and one of the youngest boys in the group disappears, presumably oh. having burned to death. Oh no! Oh no! Well, did you say that in such a modern time? That's actually really sad. Oh, it's a book, so it's okay. It didn't actually happen. I'm I'm gonna not comment on that and move on. At first, the boys enjoy their life without grown-ups and spend much of their time splashing in the water and playing games. Big mood. Ralph, however, complains that they should be maintaining the signal fire and building huts for shelter. The hunters fail in their attempt to catch a wild pig, but their leader, Jack, becomes increasingly preoccupied with the act of hunting. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As young adolescent boys boys do. do. When a ship passes by on the horizon one day... I'm, I'm going to pass your tea to you because you were, like, barely grabbing it. Sorry. That was a whole, that was a, almost a big incident. Moving on. When a ship passes by on the horizon one day, Ralph and Piggy notice to their horror that the signal fire, which had been the hunter's responsibility to maintain, has burned out. They just noticed this? They just noticed this. Alrighty. Furious, Ralph accosts Jack, but the hunter has just returned with his first kill, and all the hunters seem gripped with a strange frenzy, reenacting the chase in a kind of wild dance. Fine. Piggy criticizes Jack, who hits Piggy across the face. Oh no. Ralph blows the conch shell and reprimands the boys in a speech intended to restore order. At the meeting, it quickly becomes clear that some of the boys have started to become afraid. The littlest boys, known as Little Uns, have been troubled by nightmares from the beginning, and more and more boys now believe that there is some sort of beast or monster lurking on the island. Fun. The older boys try to convince the others at the meeting to think rationally, asking where such a monster could possibly hide during the daytime. One of the Little Uns suggests that it hides in the sea, a proposition that terrifies the entire group. I mean, yeah, can you imagine a giant sea monster that just at night comes up on land and is like, sup, I'm here to kill some peeps. You didn't know this, I don't think, but Lake Champlain, where I grew up near, there is... Yeah, I know, there's a champ. There's a champ. Yeah, I know. And he doesn't come up onto the land. But he's, he's down there. Did I tell you I used to vacation at Lake Champlain every single summer until I was 15? You literally were so close to me. How did we not know each other? Because we met in college! It's stupid! <laughs> yeah, but we should have known each other before. Well, yeah, okay. Anyways, I'm well aware of Champ because he's there's a me. fantastic um, children's museum in that area. Echo? Yeah, in Burlington. Echo. I love With Echo! With all the exhibits about Champ. This is yeah. an Echo advertisement. Yeah, they <laughs> should sponsor us. Echo sponsor us. Um, but yeah, no, I used to go there all the time because they had those really fun interactive exhibits that, like, really the children's museums there. near my hometown didn't, so I used to love that place. I got a new book every summer because we went around my birthday. Nice. So you know about Champ, so that made me I, think I Champ. know about Champ. All right. So, not long after the meeting, some military planes engage in a battle high above the island. Damn. The boys asleep below do not notice the flashing lights and explosions in the clouds. How? <laughs> They're asleep, and they're boys. Okay, I don't know. Maybe they just sleep really heavily like you because That's if valid. If a plane flies over campus, <laughs> I'm awake and ready to go. My goodness. <laughs> well, in this situation, when the planes fly over, a parachutist drifts to the earth on the signal fire mountain, dead. 
Great. Sam and Eric, or Sam and Eric, as they're referred to throughout Sam the Sam and Eric. Sam and Eric. <laughs> the twins responsible for watching the fire at night are asleep and do not see the parachutist land. When they wake up, they see the enormous silhouette of his parachute and hear the strange flapping noises it makes. Thinking the island beast is at hand, they rush back to camp in terror and report that the beast has attacked them. A reasonable assumption if you woke up in the middle of the night and you just heard things flapping and it was a giant figure. Yep. Yep. So the boys organize a hunting expedition to search for the monster. Jack and Ralph, who are increasingly at odds, travel up the mountain. They see the silhouette of the parachute from a distance and think that it looks like a huge deformed ape. The group holds a meeting at which Jack and Ralph tell the others of the sighting. Jack says that Ralph is a coward and that he should be removed from office. Hmm. Hmm. We've been hearing that a lot recently. (laughs) But the other boys refuse to vote Ralph out of power. Jack angrily runs away down a beach, calling all the hunters to join him. Ralph rallies the remaining boys to build a new signal fire, this time on the beach rather than on the mountain. They obey, but before they have finished the task, most of them have slipped away to join Jack. Alright. Alrighty. We love a good betrayal. Yep. Good backstabbing of children. (laughs) Goodness gracious. Jack declares himself the leader of the new tribe of hunters and organizes a hunt and hunt and a violent ritual slaughter of a sow to solemnize the occasion. Fantastic. Just kill a female pig and call it a day. <laughs> the hunters then decapitate the sow and place its head on a sharpened stake in the jungle as an offering to the beast. Fantastic. Later, encountering the bloody, fly-covered head, Simon has a terrible vision, <sighs> during which it seems to him that the head is speaking. Oh no. The voice which he imagines as belonging to the Lord of the Flies says that Simon will never escape him, for he exists within all men. Mm. Simon faints, and when he wakes up, he goes to the mountain where he sees the dead parachutist. Understanding then that the beast does not exist externally, but rather within each individual boy, Simon travels to the beach to tell the others what he has seen. But the others are in the midst of a chaotic revelry. Even Ralph and Piggy have joined Jack's feast. And when they see Simon's shadowy figure emerge from the jungle, they fall upon him and kill him with their bare hands and teeth. I mean, Simon was onto some shit, like, just on a real philosophical level. Yeah. Like, he would have been a great philosophy major, but, like, also, why are boys dicks? <laughs> Men are trash. <laughs> The following morning, Ralph and Piggy discuss what they have done. Jack's hunters attack them with their few followers and steal Piggy's glasses in the process. Ralph's group travels to Jack's stronghold in an attempt to make Jack see reason, but Jack orders Sam and Eric tied up and fights with Ralph. In the ensuing battle, one boy, Roger, rolls a boulder down the mountain, killing Piggy and shattering the conch shell. Good. Ralph barely manages to escape a torrent of spears. Great. Great. Good. Ralph hides for the rest of the night and the following day, while the others hunt him like an animal. Jack has the other boys ignite the forest in order to smoke Ralph out of his hiding place. Ralph stays in the forest, where he discovers and destroys the sow's head, but eventually he is forced out onto the beach, where he knows the other boys will soon arrive to kill him. Ralph collapses in exhaustion, but when he looks up, he sees a British naval officer standing over him. The officer's ship noticed the fire raging in the jungle. The other boys reach the beach and stop in their tracks at the sight of the officer. Amazed at the spectacle of this group of bloodthirsty, savage children, the officer asks Ralph to explain. Ralph is overwhelmed by the knowledge that he is safe, but, thinking about what has happened on the island, he begins to weep. The other boys begin to sob as well. The officer turns his back so that the boys may regain their composure. I'm sorry, but that is a lot of, like, toxic masculinity on the officer's part for being like 
well, the boys, they're crying. I must, I must look away. Not console them so they can regain their composure like real men. These boys have been through one of the most traumatic experiences in the world. And honestly, like, I'm very much so, like, yes, they did some terrible things. Yeah. But they're also children. Yeah. Okay. They're kids. In the office, the office I'm not saying what not. they did was oh, righteous no. or anything yeah. like that. They're still fucking terrible people. But they're kids. Mm-hmm. They're kids without supervision. Yep. Yep. So, is that the plot summary That's got? the plot summary. Oh my goodness. Alright. Is there anything on William Golding? Yeah. This was his first so, book, right? This was... Hang on. I think I'd like to know book. if this was his first book. I... It does say, yep, in the novel listing, this is his first book. He wrote, like, a book of poems before that, but this Poems don't count as, as literature. <laughs> they do. They don't count as books. <laughs> this is his first book, I believe, yeah. yes. But he did write poetry prior to this. Alrighty. But yeah, so William Golding was born in his grandmother's house in Cornwall. And the house was actually known as Carenza, which is the Cornish language word for love. Ooh. And he spent many childhood holidays there. Which is really nice. Yeah, that's really sweet. Yeah. He grew up in Marlborough, Wiltshire, where his father was a science master at Marlborough Grammar School. And the school that he went to and his brother Joseph went to was actually the same school that his dad taught at, which is pretty neat. Well, hold on. Just a quick pause. Please tell me that this guy had no traumatic life experiences that led him to, like, fall apart to pieces after, like, the last couple of people we've talked about and everything. Let's keep going. Oh, no. Find out. Oh, no. Okay. His mother, Mildred, kept house at 29, the Green, Marlborough, and was a campaigner for female suffrage. Oh. So, you go, Mildred. Yeah, fucking A, Mildred. (laughs) Go for it. So, she was Cornish, and he considered her a superstitious Celt. Oh, no. Oh, no. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Alright, sorry, we're back. My alarm started going off and it was ruining everything. So you were saying she was Cornish? Yes, Golding's mother was Cornish and he considered her a superstitious Celt. And she used to tell him old Cornish fairy tales from her own childhood. Oh. And he actually went to Brasenose College, Oxford, where he read natural sciences for two years before transferring to English literature. Are natural sciences like biology, geology... It's a branch of science concerned with the description, prediction, and understanding of natural phenomenon based on empirical evidence from observation to experimentation. Does that help me? <laughs> Come on, we can... Biology, chemistry, okay, physics, okay, okay, astronomy, okay. earth science. All right. Yes. All right. I am Thank the Wikipedia you, Wikipedia. We know it. <laughs> All right. So yeah, he transferred to English literature and took his BA degree with second class honors in the summer of 1934. And later that year, a book of his poems was published by Macmillan and Company. Macmillan. Macmillan. Sorry, that's a fun name. With the help of his Oxford friend, the anthrosophist Adam Bittleson. What? Wait, wait, wait. What does that word mean? <laughs> Anthroposophist is the, philo- is the philosophy founded by Rudolf Steiner that postulates the existence of an objective, intellectually comprehensible spiritual world, accessible to human experience through inner development. All right. I'm going to listen back to that afterwards and process that. <laughs> That's a lot. If y'all need to do that too, valid. <laughs> so he was a schoolmaster teaching English and music at Maidstone Grammar School, and then he taught philosophy in English. And then just English at Is the this Bishop. Holding? Yes. Okay. At the holding. Bishop Wordsworth School, Salisbury, Wiltshire. He married Anne Brookfield, and she was an analytical chemist. 
Oh, so snap! That's pretty badass. Yeah! And they married in 1939. They had two children, David and Judith. Great names. And he, during World War II, he joined the Royal Navy and served uh, in a destroyer, which was briefly involved in the pursuit and sinking of the German battleship Bismarck. Ooh. He also participated in the invasion of Normandy on D-Day, commanding a landing ship that fired rockets onto the beaches and was in action at Walcheren, in which 23 out of 24 assault crafts were stuck. Wow, powered yeah. you have. And then he, Ugh. in 1985, him and his wife moved to Paranawarthal, near Truro, Cornwall. And he died of heart failure eight years later in 1993. Okay, hold on. Why did I feel like... Did you say 1893 or 1993? I think you said 1893. Well, it's 1993, boys. I might have said it right and Jane might be wrong, but I also might be wrong. So send us hate mail. (laughs) Spilling tea podcast at at gmail.com. We really just want emails. Please send us emails. Twitter sent us an email earlier today and we got excited because we thought it was an email from like someone who listened, but it was just from And then we remembered that no one listens. (laughs) So if you're listening, thanks. Yay. Um, hold on. Why did I think, I knew he was writing about World War II and, like, the Cold War, but mm-hmm. why did I feel like this guy died in the 19, or the 1890s? He died in the 1990s. That's wild to me. I don't Yeah. Know, like, I think the first time I read this book, um, my professor played it off as, like, it was about World War One or something like okay. that. Okay. Yeah. Um, but also, planes. Yeah. And submarines. Mm-hmm. But, I don't know why I thought he was, like dead in the 1890s so um i'm a little shooketh right now a little shooketh right now (laughs) also not that this helps any of our listeners but look at that beard wow if you go on the wikipedia page for william golding and just look at the picture like what a dude also let us know if you um want us to start a blog just so we can share some (laughs) pictures so we can share some cool photos let us know post it on the twitter (laughs) oh we could post it on twitter and but that is a fantastic beard pretty fucking great so is there more to his life, or was he just, like, a um, vet that just started really writing? He really just was a vet, and he started writing, and he, you know, had a pretty chill life compared to a lot of the other people. You know, he had a lot of, he suffered a lot of rejection from publishers, but... But what writer doesn't? What writer doesn't? I mean, yeah, he pretty much, it took him, it took him a while to get Lord of the Flies published, but he, you know, got there in 1954, and he moved around a bit, and he met some other, like, village, he met some other villagers, and they talked a lot about, you know, literature, and he really just kind of had a relax, and once he started writing, he just wrote, and hung out, and lived with his wife and his kids, and had a, a relatively happy life compared to the rest of the people wow. covered. that is really positive. Also, he's got some badass women in his life. He really does. Like, his wife, yeah, an analytical chemist, and in, like, the 30s? I don't know what really what that means, to be quite honest. Neither do I, which makes it more impressive to me. <laughs> also, like, his mom is oh just Oh my god, yo. Alright, so, I'm gonna get on. into the more depressing side of it, analyzing a bit of, um, sort of the themes that we see in Lord of the Flies, but first I gotta swap over the laptops, and we're you gonna sure take a do. quick break. Alright, back from a break. Let's go. Um, so, 
Um, Golding framed the novel within the atomic age, having the boys crash on an island on the island after a presumed nuclear attack. Um, with this, he was able to tap into some of the fear and widespread cultural panic over nuclear destruction and the capacity for warfare. After the first atomic bombs hit Japan post World War One or, or World War Two. I think that was a long time World War II was ending, right? That was yes. one of the big, like, it final was one of the big, yep. I, like, know this, but I want to double-check it <laughs> so I don't sound stupid, because we usually sound stupid. Hey, listen. <laughs> All right, so after the first atomic bombs hit Japan, the Soviet Union and the United States began competing in a nuclear arms race that became known as the Cold War, and that had a lot of, like, political and social contexts, like, it spread throughout the world. Like, we, that's when we get started getting third world and oh, the yeah. fear of domino effect and everything like that. Um, so this affected people everywhere as bomb shelters began popping up and students practiced bomb protection drills in American classrooms. There was this belief that if a nuclear explosion happened, students could get under their desks and curl up in a ball and that would protect them from nuclear fallout. Where realistically... It, it does do nothing. nothing. It does nothing. Um, there also had, like, promotions around that time suggesting that if people, like, curled up behind a stone wall, they would survive. Um, just so they weren't creating mass panic over how little there is to mm-hmm. change the outcome of what happens to you with a nuclear bomb. Like, if a nuclear bomb goes off and you're within, I don't know, like... Uh, hundreds of miles. Hundreds I mean, of miles. It's, like... it's, it's deadly. I I don't know much about nuclear warfare, but yeah. So there was still widespread panic over the potential threat of nuclear war, and I think this is still prevalent today, especially with Trump's threats um, towards North Korea, as well as the demonstrations of nuclear power by North Korea, which that was something that was really popular about a year or two ago. Yeah, about a within the last year. Yeah, within the last forefront a lot more. Yeah, and it's still a. Large no. question of um we're on the brink of World War Three as people are like calling it, mm-hmm. but unfortunately there's it's gonna be just nuclear warfare if it comes down to it. So we're really trying to stick away from that, Trump. Please listen, stick away from hey, it. Hey Trump, listen to our podcast <laughs> and leave us hate. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'm not cutting that. It's just <laughs> awkward and uncomfortable and I'm leaving it in. So, this brings up a lot of questions about how human capacity could create such violence and evil. Um, Golding explored this through the eyes of the boys, showing that the drive for violence and domination is not limited to adults, or more specifically, adults in powerful positions, but rather, it's an innate human emotion and experience. So, I I went a little further into why we have war. Um, A quote from Quincy Wright in his A Study of War, that's in quotations, reads, war arises because of the changing relations of numerous variables, technological, psychic, social, and intellectual. There is no single cause of war. Peace is an equilibrium among many forces. Change in any particular force, trend, movement, or policy may at one time make for war, but under other conditions, a a similar change may make for peace. A state may at one time promote peace by armament, I think, and at another time by disarmament, at one time by insistence on its rights, at another time by a spirit conciliation. To estimate the probability of war at any time involves, therefore, 
an appraisal of the effect of current changes upon the complex of intergroup relationships throughout the world. So I thought this was particularly particularly interesting because if you really think about it, the boys created their own type of society on the island, um, which like sort of mimicked the society that they came from. There were two opposing ideologies or sides of how on how the civilization should be run. Um, Ralph, who believed in the more democratic approach, uh, willed the boys to talk and come up with solutions, and Jack, who wanted just to do whatever he wanted to do and enjoy the island and do what it takes to survive. Um, he just wanted to do whatever. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the book, when Ralph was still in control and the conch shell was the symbol of peace, there was an agreement between all the boys to maintain a calm society whose goal was survival until rescue. But after a while, and Ralph's plan for rescue, i.e. the fire, was not getting the results that was that were wanted, um, the promise of a calm society under until the rescue was dwindling. Uh, Jack began to rise to power as a prominent leader who could show immediate results in the form of a hunt. Sounding kind of familiar? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, a leader who could show immediate results but likely should not be running anything? Wow. He can't even show immediate results. Yeah, I know, but there's the promise of media results, and that works for some people. Fair enough. <laughs> this is not all political commentary. We just got some thoughts. <laughs> so, even though it was a very primal example of a, a society in the sense of its very basic actions, hunt versus rescue, mm -hmm. um, it still replicates what many countries or states go through as a cyclical process of leadership. The United States, for, for an example... We have presidents of progress and then presidents of action who want to do what the people who are not being affected by progress want to do. Mm -hmm. I'm not explaining that completely well, but like... I know what you mean. Obama versus Trump. We're going to get a lot of hate for this. This is great. Leave us hate. <laughs> <laughs> Within this, um, I believe that the boys were also performing adulthood as they were doing what they believed adults would do. Um, I'm not sure if they necessarily know that they are replicating a state system or political cycle, um, but Ralph goes towards the democratic approach, which is similar to what political leaders would do during a time of war, attempting to find a solution through talking, planning, delegating, and then doing what needs to be done, whereas I believe Jack was replicating what he believes a soldier would do during a time mm -hmm. of war, which would be fight for what you believe in and want an overall violence to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, it is particularly interesting how this plays out, um, because it's through a child's eye, which is what makes it so shocking, and I think what caused a lot of controversy over this book, because what the boys do is heinous, except it's what happens in society during times of war, mm -hmm. it's just played out as not like, this is a political yeah. motivation, or this is a motivation for religion, or something like that, it's just... This is happening because we're stuck on an island and we're 12-year-old boys. Mm -hmm. um, I also find it particularly significant and interesting how the boy's rescuer is a Navy officer in his uniform. In the frame of this being during wartime, the uniformed Navy man is a figure that the boys would be comfortable seeing in their everyday lives, so it is normalized in their minds. Like, if, if they were back home before this yeah. nuclear attack... They'd be seeing people in uniform all oh, the yeah. time. Um, in addition to this, a Navy man in his uniform is seen as an authority figure instantly by the boys, which allows them to 
give the responsibility that they've had on the island to maintain some sort of control to this figure and regain some of the childlike uh, innocence that they have lost in the jungle of the island. And the fact that they murdered two, three people. Three people. Including the little boy that just got lost. Yeah. Um... The Navy officer also remarks how it is remarkable that the boys can create and let happen such advanced savagery. And I'm going to quickly turn to the pages because I know where they are. That ASMR page turning. (laughs) With the ASMR tea pouring. So it's a pretty long chunk, so I'm just going to read through it. He, Ralph, staggered to his feet tensed for more terrors, and looked up at a huge peaked cap. It was white-topped cap. It was a white-topped cap, and above the green shade of the peak was a crown, an anchor, gold foliage. He saw a white drill, epaulets? Epaulets. Epaulets, a revolver, a row of gilt buttons down the front of a uniform. A naval officer stood on the sand, looking down at Ralph in wary astonishment. On the beach behind him was a cutter, her bows hauled up and held by two ratings. In the stern sheets, another rating held a mach- submachine gun. The ultillation, <laughs> ultillation, sorry, faltered and died away. The officer looked at Ralph doubt- doubtfully for a moment and then took his hand away from the butt of the revolver. Hello. Squirming a little conscious of his filthy appearance, Ralph answered shyly, hello. The officer nodded as if a question had been answered. Are there any adults, any grown-ups with you? Dumbly, Ralph shook his head. He turned a half pace on the sand. A semicircle of little boys, their bodies streaked with colored clay, sharp sticks in their hands, were standing on the beach making no noise at all. Fun and games, said the officer. The fire reached the coconut palms by the beach and swallowed them noisily. A flame, seemingly detached, swung like an acrobat and licked up the palm heads on the platform. The sky was black. The officer grinned cheerfully at Ralph. We saw your smoke. What have you been doing? Having a war or something? Ralph nodded. The officer inspected the little scarecrow in front of him. The boy needed a bath, a haircut, a nose wipe, and a good deal of ointment. Nobody killed, I hope. Any dead bodies? Only two, and they're gone. The officer leaned down and looked closely at Ralph. Two? Killed? Ralph nodded again. Behind him, the whole island was shuddering with flame. The officer knew, as a rule, when people were telling the truth. He whistled softly. Other boys were appearing now, tiny tots, some of them, brown with the disintended bellies of small savages. One of them came close to the officer and looked up. I'm, I'm, but there was no, no more to come. Percival Wilms Madison. Sorry, that's a name. (laughs) Do you see it? Percival Wemis, Wemis, Wemis Madison. Madison. Uh, Sought in his head for an incantation that had faded clean away. The officer turned back to Ralph. We'll take you off. How many of you are there? Ralph shook his head, and the officer looked past into the group of painted boys. Who's boss here? I am, said Ralph loudly. A little boy who wore the remains of an extraordinary black cap on his red hair and who carried the remains of a pair of spectacles at his waist started forward, then changed his mind and stood still. We saw your smoke. And you don't know how many of of you there are? No, sir. I should have thought, said the officer, as he visualized visualized the search before him. I should have thought that a pack of British boys, you're all British, aren't you, would have been able to put up a better show than that, I mean. It was like, it was like that at first, said Ralph, before things, he stopped. We were together then, the officer nodded helpfully. I know, jolly good show, like the, the Coral Island. 
Ralph looked at him dumbly. For a moment, he had a fleeting picture of the strange glamour that had once invested the beaches. But the island was scorched like the dead wood. Simon was dead, and Jack had... The tears began to flow, and sobs shook him. He gave himself up to them now for the first time on the island. Great shuddering spasms of grief that seemed to wrench his whole body. His voice rose under the black smoke before the burning wreckage of the island, and infected... And infected by that emotion, the other little boys began to shake and sob too. And in the middle of them, with filthy body, matted hair, and unwiped nose, Ralph wept for the end of innocence, the darkness of man's heart, and the fall th through the air of the true, wise friend called Piggy. The officer, surrounded by these noises, was moved and a little embarrassed. He turned away to give them time to put, pull themselves together and waited, allowing his eyes to rest on the trim cruiser in the distance. So... Long quote, but basically what I'm getting at is he remarks about how incredible it is that the boys didn't do a good job at having a civilization and end up leaning towards savagery and having this whole war with people dying. And while he's, like, turning away from them so that they can regain, like, their composure, he looks at his boat and is like, ah, shit, fuck. Mm -hmm. God damn it. I'm doing the same thing as the boys. Mm -hmm. So... Sorry, that's that was long, but um, I just thought that's like one of the most important sections of the book the to me. Whole book. The whole book, um, just because it's such like a parallel to what is happening in real, oh, yeah. like in true society that William Golding is commenting on. So um, this leads into the main theme that is prevalent in this book and that has led to so many adaptations of this theme in other books. This was kind of the first one to really hit on it because as, um, as soon as I tried to look it up on Google, I just kept seeing more essays about this, about yep. Lord of the Flies. So, um, I'm talking about civilization versus savagery. The central concern of Lord of the Flies is the conflict between the two competing impulses that exist within all humans, the instinct to live by the rules, act peace of peacefully follow moral commands and value the good of the group against the instinct to gratify one's immediate desires, act violently to obtain supre supremacy over others and enforce one's will. Oh, yeah, sorry, that is a weird sentence. Anyways, so basically, good versus bad. Mm -hmm. um, this conflict might be expressed in a number of ways, civilization versus savagery, order versus chaos, reason versus impulse, law versus aren't I can't say that word to right now. That one. That one right there. Anarchy. Anarchy. Thank you. <laughs> or the broader heading of good versus evil. Throughout the novel, Golding associates the instinct of civilization with good and the instinct of savagery with evil. Um, so, sorry, I've got a lot of reading. I have a lot of notes today. The conflict between the two interests is the driving force of the novel explored through the dissolution of the young English boys' civilized, moral, disciplined behavior as they accustom themselves to the wild, brutal, barbaric life of the jungle. Um, so, Golding, this is an allegorical novel, so Golding uses his main ideas and themes through each character. So, Ralph, um, the protagonist, represents order and leadership, and Jack, the antagonist, uh, represents savagery and the de desire for power. So this has varying degrees where Piggy has no savage feelings, so he's the complete end of one spectrum, and Roger seems barely capable of comprehending the rules of civilization, the other spectrum. Um, Golding implies that the instinct of savagery is far more primal and fundamental to the human psyche than the instinct of civil excuse me, civilization. 
Um, Golding sees moral behavior in many cases as something that civilization forces upon the individual rather than a natural expression of human individuality. Um, and when left to their own devising, Golding implies people naturally revert to cruelty, savagery, and barbarian, barbarism. I can't speak. Barbarism. Barbarism, thank you. <laughs> this idea of innate human evil is central to Lord of the Flies and finds expression in several important themes, most notably the beast and the sow's head on the stake. Um, so, yeah. This is a theme that, like, is not going away, apparently. Um, so I found an article by the Foundation of Economic Education, which is a libertarian economic think tank uh, dedicated to the economic, ethic, ethical, and legal principles of a free society. So they, like, publish books and host seminars and lectures. And, um, I don't know if this is necessarily considered, like, an op-ed or something. It doesn't, I don't think it specifies. But it's... It's certainly... From a very particular perspective. It's a, from a very particular perspective, but it's about the Westminster Minster, Westminster mm -hmm. attack. Um, and the article is titled The Westminster Attack, Savagery versus Civilization. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but um, basically he, I just want to like find the one section, I forgot to highlight it, but he believes that the Westminster Bridge pedestrians represented civilization, as in the, like, way of life of the civilian, where they, like, work through, like, the division of labor, and they're just basic civ mm -hmm. civilians, um, and that the terrorist attack was savagery, which, like, I understand that, but it's, it's weird hearing that framed in that way. Yeah. Kind of get what I'm saying. Are you I falling do. asleep? Am I I'm, boring you? I'm not falling asleep. So I'm just relaxing, <laughs> just uh, cruising along. So I just found that particularly interesting because that was a very like big event that happened, um, and it's it was just kind of strange to me that it was framed in that way, and that literature is still being framed in that way. And also, like, real-life events. <laughs> so, I just did, I just looked into that. Also, um, the last thing I will talk about, because I see, feel like I've been talking for literally 40 minutes. <laughs> um, Who knows? Maybe you have. <laughs> maybe I have. Um, there's also a lot of biblical parallels in this novel, so many ca ca critics have characterized Lord of the Flies as a retelling of episodes from the Bible. Um, this description is an oversimplification, but the novel does echo certain Christian ideas and themes. Um, there's no specific, like, direct connections to Christian symbol symbolism, but it's a very subtle motif. Um... The island itself, particularly Simon's Glade of the Forest, recalls, like, the Garden of Eden and its status as the originally pristine place that is corrupted by the introduction of evil, i.e. the boys. If I can actually... Yeah. There is one thing that I kind of do want to say about Simon, because there's a really clear parallel between, like, the sort of, like, Ralph and what we would consider civilized society and Jack and, like, you know, war and barbarism. But I think Simon exists in a really interesting sort of I don't know if you are going to talk about this I'm later. going to talk about Simon briefly. Okay. But 
but he exists sort of outside of that whole dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Like, he really is just, he's so much more in tune with nature than the rest of the boys. He's so much, like, kinder than yeah. the rest of them. Yeah, he And he really is. is really the one who, you know, makes the big real, and he just exists outside of that, the way that the other two are aligning themselves, which I think is very interesting. Can I sort of draw another parallel that yes, makes sense to do. that? Like, that adds on to that? So similarly, we see the Lord of the Flies as a representation of the devil, for it works to promote evil among humankind, just as Simon says. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, many critics have drawn strong parallels between Simon and Jesus. Oh, wow. Among the boys, Simon is the one who arrives at the moral truth of the novel, and the other boys kill him sacrificially as a consequence of having discovered this truth. Simon's conversation with the Lord of the Flies also parallels the confrontation between Jesus and the devil during Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, as told in the Christian Gospels. Oh, I like that parallel. Yeah, right? Um, so I do have to say, like, your whole, he's more connected to the nature, mm-hmm. he's not in this. Maybe that's because he's not... He's literally Jesus. He's, he's Jesus. Like, <laughs> figuratively he's, Jesus, I he's guess. He's figuratively mm-hmm. Jesus. He's not connected to the sort of, sort of like, human mm-hmm. innate emotions that happen yeah. and the drives that happen with the other boys because he's beyond it. You kind of get what I'm saying? I do. So, um, however, it's important to remember that the parallels between Simon and Christ are not complete and that it's a limited reading of Lord of the Flies. So I don't want people come like sending us hate mail being like, oh my god, don't you know that like Lord of the Flies is not the Bible? Yeah, I'm aware that Lord of the Flies is not the Bible. Thank you very much. Oh, still send us hate mail. Um... <laughs> But he also has two very uncanny predictions for the future. He lacks the supernatural connection to God that Jesus has in Christian tradition, but, like, he does have predictions about the future. I'm Mm -hmm. pretty sure when he's talking with the other boys, he says these. Um, His death doesn't bring salvation to the island either. It It ultimately just plunges the island deeper into savagery and moral guilt. And he is, he dies before he's able to tell the boys the truth that he discovered. Um, and Jesus, on the other hand, was killed spreading his moral philosophy. So it echoes Christian ideas and themes, but it doesn't explicitly say, like, Simon is Jesus yeah. for X, Y, and Z. Um, so I think, like, the biblical parallels help enhance its moral themes, but it's not the primary key to interpreting anything. So I thought that was yeah, kind of funky. Like um, so I'm gonna pass the computer back to Mackenzie. Oh yes. And I think it's time to talk about the, some of the ca- terrible characters in this novel. Dears. Because we we love talking, we love about, talking about shitty people. Characters. So I want to preface this by saying that like these are all literal children, and I am a little more hesitant to like say peg them as like a shitty person. I'm just gonna say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just. Gonna, I mean, I have my character, but I do also. Don't I saw you cheating, looking at my do folder. Do we want to count? Do we have the same one? No, we do not. We do not have the same one. Yours is one of mine, but I have another one. All right. Um. So I will talk about my other one. But all right. So. Yeah. No. Let's just preface this by saying they are children. We do not think they are shitty people overall. They've gone through a traumatic experience. But we still think what they have done is terrible, and we hate them just a little bit. Just a bit. 
just a tad. All right. So let's so hear about yours. My person is Roger. Oh, shocking. <laughs> and they, I, I always have to pull the opening line from Schmoop on whatever this oh, is. We love they always it. have good stuff we to say. We love the Schmoop opening Thanks, line. <laughs> Roger is totally that kid on the playground who used to torture ants with a magnifying glass. <laughs> you yep. know it's true. Yep. He just, our first, like, mention of him he is described as a slight and furtive boy with an inner intensity of avoidance and secrecy who mutters. Who mutters? Who mutters. That just doesn't sound like someone that you want to be stuck on an island with. He sounds kind of crazy. Crazy? Yeah. He sounds insane. And he is he aligns himself with Jack, and Roger wants to kind of align himself with Jack more because he likes the idea of hurting others. Great. Than anything Sadistic. else. Even before everything started to get too crazy. Him and his uh, kind of friend Maurice destroy the little and sandcastles for no reason. I know. I other than I, just I, like I, being terrible. It makes me so sad. Like yeah. what the fuck? These kids are trying to just build some yeah. sandcastles so to calm maybe down. Roger's a pretty bad kid because he shows from the right off the bat. This isn't like he'd be the little bitch that would knock over someone's ice cream cone and be like, he "Suck would. it." He absolutely would. Ugh. And he, I mean, he doesn't really become a you know murderous psychopath all at once. He's sort of held back by the taboo of the old life, as Golding says. And when he... Well, there's one scene where he throws rocks in uh, the little kid Henry's general direction, but doesn't actually throw the rocks at him. Oh. But Roger... So, you know, if, uh, at first he kind of has the the uh, like appearance of civility. Like, yeah, he's still yeah. a bad kid, but he's not like... You know, he's like the kid that sometimes gets detention. Yeah, oh, he just messes up. But by the end, he's just completely. I mean, he's the one who like drops the rock that kills Piggy. Like at the end, yeah. he just completely falls apart. Originally, he was the kid that just needed glasses in class to you know be refocused because he couldn't see the board, and now he's the kid that just is getting arrested mm -hmm. for like dealing drugs. But in the there's um an sort of an interaction that. I'm sorry, that was such a side note. It was. Oh my goodness. But Sam and Eric sort of hinted an unspeakable horrors when they say, when they're talking about Roger. And there's a whole interaction with Ralph where they say, you don't know Roger, he's a terror. And the chief, they're both terrors, only Roger. And it that's oh. the conversation. Oh, that's, that's so bizarre. Kind of like, only Roger what? Like, what's his, what's his deal? Like, we don't really know. What's his dealio, man? What's his dealio? So yeah, I had Roger as my kind of not so great character. Yeah, I also had Roger just because like, like he's just super bloodthirsty, mm -hmm. and I don't think any of the other boys really get to that level. Yeah. Um, I ended up. <laughs> I'm just laughing because I know you're gonna be like, "What?" That's my reaction every week to your shitty character. I picked Ralph. Interesting. Okay, that's not the reaction I was I expecting. I am intrigued. Alright, um, so I don't have all my reasons in front of me because I just quickly wrote this down, but he's basically the golden boy who shit at being a golden boy. <laughs> like, Valid. He's the one who everyone's like, oh, you're good at sports, you're good at clubs, you're, you'd be a great, like, president of the student body, but then when he actually gets in that position of power or actually gets on the sport team, he gets fucking benched. He also, like, can't do shit as student mm -hmm. body president. Like, I see where you're coming from. Yeah, he's yeah. just, he's not necessarily a shitty character in the sense of, like, I fucking hate him. It's more of just, like, god damn it, Ralph. God damn it, Ralph. Um, he makes fun of Piggy as yeah, soon as they get really on the weird. island. Because Piggy has the whole thing.
thing where he's like, oh, where Ralph's like, what do they call you or whatever. Yeah, what do you Piggy's call like, you? Piggy's like, well, I don't really want to say it's like a, anything's better than what they called me at like my old school. And he was like, well, what did they call you? And then Piggy was like, they called me Piggy. And, and then like, the whole time they called him Piggy. And then it just sort of like stuck. So I definitely think he's that like super popular jock that just like. Jerk jock. Jerk jock that. You know, it's not like he's a bad kid. He's just yeah. popular, and he gets away with a lot. And he torments Piggy right mm-hmm. from the start, and Piggy's his only supporter throughout the entire book. Um, and, like, Piggy doesn't deserve that. He dies. Yeah. Like, he gets killed with a rock. Like, worst way to go. Yeah. Um, he's also elected, Ralph is elected leader, but he can't do anything without getting overruled by Jack, because he doesn't want to, like, hurt anyone's feeling, and this mm-hmm. is a time where... I, like, the whole to be feared or to be loved, yeah. um, like, mentality of leadership. This is a time where I'm, like, Ralph messed up because he decided to be loved rather than feared, whereas everyone ended up fearing Jack and they're and on an island him. and respecting him for it. And he helped murder Simon. I know he was in, like, a frenzy, but... They all murdered Simon. They all murdered Simon. Like, even Peggy, and it's kind of sad. And, like... He breaks down when the officer arrives on the island, and instead of just, like, he doesn't necessarily take responsibility, he kind of does by saying, like, I'm the one who's the leader, but he also, it's sort of a way that he identifies himself as, like, oh, I'm the leader, I'm in charge of this group of boys, like, I'm the smart one, but he still, like, breaks down and, like, Mm -hmm. loses his innocence in the end, so I do have to say, like, he's... A sad character, and it's not like he's super terrible. Like, Roger is very blatantly the most evil character in this oh, yeah. book. But he's still just... Ralph makes me want to punch him. Yeah. Like, just some, little, knock some sense into him. Knock some Roger, sense Roger, you just want to punch him. Yeah, Roger sucks. But Ralph just makes me bummed. Just bummed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, any other input on any of that? I've talked a lot this episode. I mean, that was... I really just don't like Roger. I know. It's just, uh, yeah. Hopefully we can cover, um, uh, books soon that don't make us sad. Angry. Angry. Rant about Trump. Yeah! Yeah. So, um, yeah, but in all seriousness, uh, please check out our Twitter at capital S spilling, lowercase t, t, and capital P. P. T. T. Capital P. You said T. T. Yeah, lowercase t, T. Like T is in the word. Okay, so it's capital <laughs> S. No, it's spelling T P. <laughs> we just had a realize. We forgot our Twitter. Oh, uh, no, no, no. I was saying like lowercase the letter T, and then T as in the drink. But it's just T the letter. No, it, no, it's not. It's spilling T, capital P. I'm looking this up right Oh my now. god, this could be a whole argument. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty easy fix. We just look at the damn Twitter. Look at the damn Twitter, I'm then. loading the damn Twitter. <laughs> um, also, check, uh, send us some emails about what you want to see next on the podcast, a book recommendation. Yeah, we'll take book recommendations. We'll take book recommendations. We're doing oh, this just to read. It is, in fact, spill. You're right. I am right. I told you, you dumbass. It's lowercase, you the letter start over, T. Start over, start over, start over. 
So the word spilling with a capital S, the word T with a lowercase T, and then the letter P. Yep. Did we change that? No, that's how it's always been. <laughs> so it's sure? capital S spilling, lowercase T, <laughs> T is in the beverage, and capital P at on Twitter. Uh, check us out. We update our Twitter pretty pretty frequently with uh, teaser Tuesdays and everything like that. Um, also, send us recommendations for books, um, teas. Recommendation for tea. I can link a tea to anything, as we've seen. Yeah, if you want us to cover a particular author by any chance. Um, so our, our Gmail is spillingteapodcast at gmail.com, spelled exactly like how it's spelled everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um... But, yeah, I think that sums up all of our, like, thoughts on Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies and also all of our housekeeping things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Uh, thanks so much for listening to Spilling Tea. The tea is spilt and the covers are closed. See you next week. Bye. Bye.